0: Hey, we're in Galatians chapter 5, a series on the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to move quick today because we're doing communion at the end of the service. And so we're going to jump right in. But if you want to turn to Galatians chapter 5, we'll kind of go back to what Paul is uh, listing here as the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that comes, the virtue that comes, the character that comes, the states that, that emerge in our life. Uh, As we spend time or as we walk through life uh, in fellowship with the Spirit, as we're shaped by the Holy Spirit. And so he says in chapter 5, verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. That those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. We began this series and we looked at uh, the idea of love. And then last week we looked at joy and happiness and kind of what that says to us in the life of a believer. What we can get excited about, the way God made us, what he desires for us in our lives. To have the fullness of joy uh, in our relationship with Him, that that would transform us, that that would kind of go out and be a light to others. And this week we get to peace. So if you really look at the list in terms of potentially even order of importance, it's no surprise that love is first. Uh, joy or this idea of happiness, this, this idea of the best that you could, could experience and feel and know, uh, the best in life, it, it kind of is no surprise that that's number two maybe. And then we get to this word peace. And I think if we were honest with ourselves growing up looking at this list or if you heard this list, you'd kind of just skip through peace. Like love, joy, great peace. Yeah, I get it. That's supposed to be there. What's next? You know, and it's it's kind of a skip over word. It's a very neutral word in the English language. But why is it third here? Why is it so important? And I think it's says more to us than what we've ever realized or been taught. So we really want to dive into this this morning and look at, and I'm going to use the the Hebrew word for peace uh, more often than the English word, but this idea of shalom, this idea of biblical shalom. So what is shalom? That's the, the Hebrew word shalom. What is shalom? You've got a little insert in your bulletin. If you didn't get a bulletin, you might want it this morning. And if you kind of raise your hand, they can bring you one. But if you didn't get a bulletin, Just raise your hand, they'll get them to you, keep it raised uh, until they see you. Um, There's a prayer on the back of it that you'll want to use during communion or or might want to use during communion. And then on the front of it, uh, there's a definition of shalom and then a place for you to take some notes or even some reflections as we go through the uh, the sermon today. We basically really want to identify areas in our life that are broken uh, that we really want healing in. And so you can kind of write those things down. So uh, I want to just read this, and you can read along. It's the definition here with all the space for writing. And it simply, simply says this. It says, according to the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, shalom is characterized by prosperity and well-being, absence of conflict, right relations. Now that's a really big one. Right relations here means a relationship with yourself, Um, Have you made peace with yourself? Have you made peace with your past? Have you made peace with with who you are and who God made you to be? The way you think, the gifts and talents you have, the way you look, uh, the family or the situations that you were born into. Um, A right relationship with God. Have you made peace with God? Are you walking um, in unity with God? Do you have a clear conscience? It even is right relationship uh, with country or between countries. So right relations here is this expansive, extremely large category. And then we move on, and it's, it's restoration of harmony in nature, things being in nature, in our relationship with nature, uh, the weather systems and the way uh, fruit grows and crops and harvest, and that we're able to sustain that way. But a right relationship or a harmony in nature. And then finally, salvation. Finally, salvation. So what we see is that This Hebrew idea of shalom is an incredibly expansive one. An incredibly expansive one. If you look at this graph that we have, in the Old Testament, um, the word that is used for anything like rest or peace or flourishing or stillness, this kind of category or cluster of words, we've got a a, a circle graph. Um, The word shalom is the big blue one on bottom, that of all of the words, all of those slices are a different word or synonym, and a lot of those are variants of the word shalom. But if you look at kind of all of those categories that would talk about flourishing or health or things as they ought to be, you see this word shalom carry that through the bulk of the Old Testament. So it's this really large, rich, expansive word. If you were to say there's something in your life that you don't like, that's broken, it's, it's, it's causing tension or stress, we could simply say there's an absence of shalom in your life in that area, that you don't have wholeness in that area. Uh, if you're looking at something and you're really grieved or angry over brokenness in the world, injustice in the world, things that aren't the way they're supposed to be, um, an enemy, someone that treats you poorly, someone that's treated you poorly in the past, something you just can't bridge or fix, then you're longing for shalom, or you're grieving or angry about the absence of shalom. This idea of shalom really kind of spreads itself out over all of our life, this idea of things being put together in whole. When the angels came in, in Matthew chapter, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter two, and they come to the shepherds and they tell them about what's going on with the birth of Jesus, they um, they proclaim. Actually, just turn there, if you will, Luke chapter two. We hear it our whole lives, kind of as children, and so one of the problems with things that we hear our whole life is that. It becomes too familiar that we don't realize kind of all that's packed into it. But when the shepherds are out there and the angels come to them, chapter 2 of Luke, starting in verse 13, it says that suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared uh, with the angels. So the, the angel that was speaking now has this whole heavenly host, and they're praising God and saying, by the way, they're saying they're not singing. We don't see angels sing until the book of Revelation. There's something really powerful about that in terms of what it points to. But they, they appear and they're praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So Jesus is coming and they're saying, Glory to God that Christ has come, the Messiah has come. And so now peace on earth to those on whom uh, his favor rests. So, this idea of shalom is that it's always attached to God, that those who have found favor with God are going to have shalom. That if you break covenant with God and, and if you begin sinning and, and you go away from God, that his peace will no longer be on you or go with you. And you, you now begin to experience brokenness in life. But if you return to the covenant and to covenant blessings, now God's peace will rest on you again. God's favor will rest on you again. And that is characterized by the wholeness and the goodness and the flourishing that comes back into your life. A picture of a garden is a perfect picture. That a well-tended garden working the way it's supposed to be where everything is in harmony and balance and produces this fruit. That's kind of the idea of shalom. Uh, If you'll turn to Isaiah, I want to give you one more example here of kind of the biblical definition of shalom. Isaiah chapter 32. We'll start in verse 15, but but primarily 16 and following. But Isaiah chapter 32, up until this point, it's been talking about everything that's going to go bad for the people and for the land. That everything will go bad, uh, though the fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted, etc. cetera, et cetera. And then it gets to verse 15 and it says this fascinating thing till the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. Till God pours His Spirit out again. And, and the symbolism there is until God's favor and presence comes and turns things around. So, till the, the Spirit is poured upon us from on high again, Isaiah chapter 32, beginning of verse 15 and the desert will become like a fertile field. And the fertile field seems like a forest. And justice will dwell in the desert, and righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places and secure homes and in undisturbed places of rest. All of those synonyms again. And though though hail flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely... How blessed you will be, sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. In other words, God will defend you. God will be your provision. God will bring the health and flourishing to you. So you have a whole lot going on here. It's the Spirit of God again is coming and proclaiming this idea that we now have his favor. The fruit of righteousness, so even the language that Paul is using with the fruit of the Spirit, this fruit of righteousness that comes about that is now connected to justice being established in the land and, and righteousness having its way as there is peace. And so you're going, what, what are all these things doing together and how do they fit? And so, interestingly enough, justice and righteousness are synonyms. And they're synonyms for this concept of a right relationship with God, self Others and creation. A right relationship with God, self, others, and creation is where where justice is, when things are in a right ordering or a right relationship. Righteousness is the same thing. Uh, These words, righteousness and justice, don't exist in the Spanish Bible. Only justicia does. If you go back to the Latin Vulgate, only justicia does. The English words justice and righteousness were synonyms back when the English Bible was being written. And they really were used to kind of um, cash out when they were used in the same verse or the same paragraph. Instead of saying justice twice, the Hebrew parallelism is much better if you say justice, righteousness. And it really fills out this whole idea. But it wasn't until the last hundred years that we really took righteousness to mean this idea of personal piety between me and God. This personal purity. I'm, I'm moral. I'm, I'm right before God because I'm, I'm pure. And that certainly gets a part of the word of righteousness, right? A right relationship between me and God. But the word righteousness is so much more expansive and, and kind of casts its net so much wider, it's synonymous with justice. We can go and show a whole lot of examples. Matthew chapter 6, when you, when you give to the needy, when you do your acts of righteousness... Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But when you give to the needy, do not tell anyone about it, lest you lose your reward. But do it in secret. And so as you give to the needy, so this whole idea of giving to the needy is somehow an act of righteousness for Jesus. Um, Well, personal purity with God, religious purity is really what righteousness meant. We, We wouldn't be able to make sense of that. So righteousness really synonymous with justice and again, uh, the, the New Testament word here is just dikaiosune, always, whether it's translated justice or righteousness, it's the same Greek word. There aren't two Greek words, there's one Greek word, and we choose to translate it in English one way or the other, but it means one thing. So when we get to Romans and Paul says, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy, um, I think we go, oh yeah, it's, it's about me and God. And out of that, I'm going to have peace, I don't know what that is, and a lot of joy. Which is really cool, because I want that. And so we just don't understand the kingdom of God. But when Jesus came and proclaimed the kingdom of God, that things would be repaired that were broken. That, that people that were, were sick or blind or couldn't talk, that that would be fixed so that they would be whole again, as it ought to be. What he was really talking about was justice, peace, shalom, and joy. That things are as they ought to be in our human relationships with each other, with nature, between nations, with God. That justice is there. Shalom, the flourishing, the goodness that comes from that. And then the joy that results, like our ability to be able to experience the fullness of happiness when things are put together as they ought to be. So justice, peace, and joy. Isn't that Remarkable. So, what's going on in Isaiah here is we see that this idea of shalom is so tied up with justice, so tied up with righteousness, it's why Jesus came. He came to die for our sins that we we could be forgiven and become righteous again in a right relationship with God, that we could become whole again. And in that newness and having a new heart and being able to grow and have the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of the Spirit, that we'd be able to live in harmony and that there would be justice there, that there would be happiness, that, that it would be a state of flourishing and shalom. Do you see that? So this word shalom is, is tied into everything that makes up our life with Christ, our, our Christian life, and the hope that we have that the kingdom of God is really coming now and will fully and finally come when Jesus returns. This idea of shalom is huge. So the English word peace just kind of doesn't capture it. The English word peace means absence of conflict. Um, why can't I get some peace and quiet? Why can't there just be peace? Uh, peace because it has to do with the absence of conflict, we tend to hear it most when we're in the world of, of politics. Because a lot of conflict that we see on the evening news isn't the kind of the kind of conflict we experience day to day, but it's conflict between certain groups, large groups, or even nations. And so it makes the evening news, and we hear that some people are trying to affect change in certain areas, while other people think that there shouldn't be the use of force. There should just be immediately the absence of conflict. And so we, we associate peace with this kind of idea of absence of conflict. You know, we do the same thing with justice. We think that justice is really about punitive justice. So when something is broken, justice is, is the punishment that comes because you broke something. Uh, the whole idea of debt to society. Have you paid your debt? You broke something, now you've gotta get punished. You. you Prison is just a timeout for adults. It really is. I mean that's the mindset, right? Is it's gotta be punished, it's gotta be it's gotta be fixed because you broke something, but it's a it's certainly a piece of justice. But what was broken and why does it matter that it was broken? And what does it look like when it's not broken? see, justice covers all of those things. And peace isn't just the absence of conflict, but it's like, what, what does it look like when there's not conflict? What does it look like when we juxtapose the two, when it really is kind of like a garden and it's, and it's flourishing? And why does it matter if there's no flourishing? Why does it matter if somehow there's conflict and tension and war or strife? Why does that even matter? Like, so we take these things in isolation, but we don't understand them within regard to the whole and this idea of shalom or justice and righteousness, certainly what the Old Testament prophets are speaking about, as Isaiah just did, really come about and say, as we walk as Christians into the kingdom of God, which is justice, shalom, joy, that we would understand God wants things to be whole. He wants you to be whole. He wants the relationships you have with your family to be whole. He wants your relationships, even with your enemy, to be kind of under an umbrella that says that you're working toward wholeness. You're praying for your enemy. You're seeing your current enemy as your your potential future friend. That that wholeness is what God aims for. When the Holy Spirit comes to nurture us, it's what we should aim for. It's as we have a new heart and we're growing into likeness in all things we're aiming toward wholeness. That we're not allowed to abide brokenness. That's not supposed to be there. And so we go a little bit further with this definition. Uh, the, if, you, if you'll turn with me, I, I'm liking the idea of you guys seeing the scriptures today. So if you'll turn with me to James chapter 3, we see again the importance of, of this idea of, of shalom or peace. James chapter 3, we'll just pick it up all the way in verse 13. And Paul is, I'm sorry, James has just talked about how destructive the tongue is. In other words, one bit of gossip, one bit of slander, and it goes viral. We don't need social media for things to go viral. We don't. Uh, Rumors go viral. They spread. They have a life of their own. Once you say it, you can't get it back. I was in a conversation with somebody a year ago where they had said things about me to people in town. And in the conversation... Um, this individual was apologizing and saying, I realized that was wrong, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And I said, I, I'll forgive you. I said, but this is my town, and I'm a pastor here. And what you said about me, like, that travels. That travels, and it travels far, and, and it makes people believe that I'm not ethical. Like, what, what are you going to do about that situation? to fix it or make it whole again. And we don't often talk about that, that the damage that gets done when things are broken, it's really hard to recapture it. And so James talks about that with the analogy or the metaphor of a forest fire, that if you're driving, uh, we drove with the kids to Crater Lake yesterday. I mean, we live in the greatest state, I think, in the country. Hour and a half, Crater Lake, back, ice cream at Sun River, no sweat. You know, like still make dinner. I mean, it's amazing, right? But as you're driving around the rim on the backside of Crater Lake, you can just see where a forest fire had come in I don't know how long ago. And it's just charred. We all know that. You drive over the pass. You see all the different places where forest fires have come. That's what happens to a person's reputation when when the tongue sets fire, slanders somebody, begins gossip. It's just a little spark, says James. But what that spark does is it literally creates a forest fire and, and burns their reputation. It's this awful thing, says James. And he's saying that's the reason he's talking about it is it's not supposed to be that way. Things are supposed to be whole. We're supposed to be together in relationship. So you have to guard your tongue. The tongue is what really creates damage. I, I remember back in my 20s um, when I was really trying to figure out Christianity that people would get really upset when you were talking about them. So I tried to like not ever talk about people for like a week. I was like doing one of those experiments. And here's what I learned when I was trying not to talk about people. Do you know what I learned? It's impossible. There's, people make up 95% of life. You can't not talk about people. The question is, what do you say about them? And what's your motive in saying it? So Paul counsels, um, let no unwholesome talk come from your mouth, but only what is edifying for the building up of others. So the issue isn't, I, So I, I hate when people say you shouldn't talk about people. Because I'm like, that's a meaningless comment. What am I going to talk about? What you, what you should mean is, um, or or what you can ask me if you hear me talking about someone, is what's your motive in talking about them? Are you speaking truth and aiming towards greater unity? Or are you speaking your emotion, and kind of desiring to hurt them because it's going to make you feel better because you can feed on that somehow. And if you're doing that, the destruction you're going to reap is not worth or not does not justify the little bit of joy that you're going to take from that kind of ill-gotten pleasure. right? So this is what James is doing. Um, James is coming in here, and then we get this. Uh, ch- uh, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13. He says... Who is wise and understanding among you, let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder, brokenness, and every evil practice. So here we go, verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers. So what we learn in this kind of chunk of scripture is simply this. We treat peace as a noun. We treat peace as a noun. It's the absence of conflict. It's it's a noun. Um, biblically, I think if we really understand this idea, it's also a verb. We are agents of peace. We make peace. I have some friends at World Relief that talk about, uh, they translated make peace as wage peace. You know, we wage war. What about if we waged peace? And what they really mean is, in Eastern Congo, when you're talking about conflict that goes like generations of of thieving of land or destroying of crops and the bitterness that comes with that, you really have to wage peace if you're going to bring back wholeness and health between tribes or individuals or communities. Or if you go to Rwanda and you're talking to women whose children or, or whose husband was killed with a machete by a man that now lives or always lived in her village I mean, that was the crazy thing about that genocide is it was neighbors killing neighbors. I mean, you can never get more opposite of, of loving your neighbor as the genocide in Rwanda. And so now you have people that have grown up in a village and their neighbor is the one responsible for killing their children or their husband. And you're supposed to make peace in that situation. It's, it's so active that this idea of waging peace, I think, Begins to mean something, doesn't it? I mean, peace doesn't just happen to us. We labor for it, we work for it, we fight for it, we go to war for peace, we wage peace. This is what James is saying is peacemakers, the people that are actively looking to bring wholeness and, and flourishing to relationships, those who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. I've been trying to teach my kids a lot. We were talking about it even yesterday. This idea of sowing means you sow seed. And when, when does the return on that investment come? It doesn't come until a lot later. So you sow in the spring and you reap in the fall. And we live in a culture, modern culture, or certainly maybe modern American culture, where we're always trying to reap when we haven't sown. I mean, it's maybe one of the curses of, of modern life is we're always trying to reap Where we have not sown. And this whole idea is that we do hard work and later we get to enjoy the bounty of that. And what James is saying is the hard work you do to bring wholeness and to fix problems is what you're going to be able to enjoy later. So the hard work of making your family tight and cohesive, apologizing for things that need to be apologized for, the hard work of making peace with your past, the hard work of making peace with God why did he let this happen? to me, or in my life, or to the people I love. The hard work of the job that you're at, the hard work of your enemy, the hard work of whatever it is, when you labor into that, and you sow little seeds, you you say nice things, you you come and you say, hey listen, I used to harbor this against you, but I'm sorry, I should have just come and talked to you. Or you know what, you did something that really made me mad, but how I responded made it even worse, and I'm sorry. All that hard work you do to bring about health and flourishing and wholeness, that later on you get to reap a harvest of that. You know, there's no wonder that movies, when they want to show how things ought to be, like think of any movie. A recent one that I was watching, we were in a hotel and it was like Fast and the Furious, somewhere in the middle. I, I don't even I don't know. It was one of the ones in the middle. Um, they ended with this meal in the backyard and they they all hold hands and they ask grace for it and the whole the whole thing here is it's like we're fighting for our friends we're fighting for goodness with with and we're driving really fast while we're doing it i mean that's the the storyline and And then, you know, the idea is they win, they they bring about the way it ought to be, the friends, you know, kind of restored relationships, and now they're at the table, and you see the faces, and it's sunset in Los Angeles, and everyone's face is glowing, and they're all really trying hard to smile, and the soundtrack is playing that music, and you're like, oh, I wish I was sitting at that table. I mean, there's so many movies like that. There's other movies where it's the holidays, Thanksgiving or Christmas, and at the end of the movie, they come around the table, and again, they ask grace, and, and, and the lights are dim, and there's laughing, and there's food, and there's wine, and, and the soundtrack's playing, and you're watching, and you're like, oh, that's so cool. I want to go hang out with like, some good friends. You know, That's the picture. The table is the picture of, of when things are as they ought to be. That's where we, we reap a harvest of righteousness. That's where we reap the beauty of our peacemaking. All the little things we did to kind of bring about wholeness and not to camp on brokenness allow us, when we get over here, to say, my life is as it ought to be. I have a clean conscience. I know that I'm doing my best. Even if I have some broken things out there, I know with a clean conscience that I'm doing my best to bring about flourishing, both in my life, the life of my family, and my community. So we work hard over here. We wage peace and we're able to reap a harvest of righteousness over here. So how do we do that? Well, what Paul's saying to us is simply this. When we understand why God created the world the way he did, when we understand we serve him, when we understand what the kingdom is really about, when Jesus comes into our life and gives us the power and the ability, the grace to make peace with ourselves and peace with God, that that should carry out in our labor in this world. That we are active participants in the reconciliation of all things. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And now we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That it's not just me and God but this righteousness that comes into my life changes and remakes me such that I'm willing to exert effort, be inconvenienced, and work hard to sow seeds that will bring about the reality of the kingdom, both in my life and in my community. Do you guys see that? So we're going to um, switch gears here. I just wanted to give you this brief allusion from uh, Lewis. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis's last book in the Chronicles of Narnia is called The Last Battle. In The Last Battle, it's this fascinating thing. You see this, this monkey named Shift and this donkey named Puzzle. And Shift dresses up the donkey in a, in a dead lion kind of carcass. And he goes, you know, I know what we're going to do. We're going we're to start taking advantage of everybody. We're going to make them think that you're Aslan. So he started telling everyone Aslan was back, but they could only see him at night when they would see the silhouette. And Aslan didn't want to talk. He talked through shift. And shift, as this tyrant, began to manipulate the Narnians and make them cut down the old forest, the talking trees, made them have animosity towards each other, was basically extorting them all in the name of Aslan. It's this crazy thing. Uh, and again, Lewis is writing this whole thing kind of on the motif of Revelation and how that all goes. But then the real Aslan shows up and and begins to come and there's this big battle. And the battle happens and Shift is kind of banished and the, the God that he was wor- worshiping. By the way, it's really interesting if you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis kind of sets up, he uses the Ottoman Empire, which which was collapsed after World War I, but C.S. Lewis fought in World War I. He uses the Ottoman Empire kind of as the symbol of of the non-Narnians, called the Calormenes, with the curved swords, and they served a god he called Tash and all this other stuff. But it's really interesting when you read it and you go put yourself kind of in Lewis's worldview and how he used the old Ottoman Empire kind of as a foil that way. But so these bad guys are in, they're with Shift, they're kind of doing these things, and then Aslan comes they try to rally the Narnians. They fight a big battle. But then they're kind of in this in-between place. It's now moving into heaven as people are being separated out. And the Pevensey children are looking at the dwarves. And, and they feel sorry for them kind of in this in-between stage. And they're, Why can't they come with us and leave this door and go, go to the good place, Aslan? And so they're basically wanting to help these dwarves. And Lewis says this... Um, there's a picture of the dwarves, I think, right? That's a picture of one of the illustrations from the book. And then this is what Aslan says. He says, well, at it, uh, I'm sorry, not what Aslan says, but this is what's being said in the book. Um, uh, the dwarves are talking to themselves and they say, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief, and their prison is only in their own minds. Yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. But come, children, I have other work to do. And there's this fascinating thing that the dwarves had this refrain. They said it many times towards the end of the book that they had been abused by Aslan, in Aslan's name. That when Aslan finally comes, they're like, screw it, we're done with Aslan. We're done with Narnia. We're done with all this. The dwarves are for the dwarves. And I think that we find ourselves today in our country, in our culture, with a very similar attitude. A lot's been done in the name of of God. A lot's been done in the name of Christianity. A lot was done to me by a church or in the name of Christ. And you know what? It's all a mess, and and it just feels like, this crazy thing, and instead of rallying to Aslan's banner, we're just done. The dwarves are for the dwarves. I'm going to be for me. It's just going to be me and God, or I'm just going to make my own way. And you know what? I'm a pretty good person. If people treat me well, I treat them well back, and and that's going to be good enough, and I'm going to go seek my own good by pursuing my own way that way. And I think that we can live as Christians in that space for a very long time. The dwarves very much manifested this. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Um, are you like the dwarves this morning? Probably not in your thinking normally. But if I asked you about your broken relationship or the broken relationships or your enemy or the, the, the parts that you've just given up trying to fix... Are you more like the dwarves with that kind of an attitude in those areas than you are like someone who's got the spirit of God in them and trying to remake them as an agent of reconciliation? Or are we more filled with the love or the grace of Christ that we might be able to make peace even where it's difficult? We might be able to wage peace. Um, One of the greatest examples in, in my life recently of what it means to truly be willing to wage peace came when I went to Israel. When I went to Israel I met a, a woman and I met a man, an Israeli woman and a Palestinian man, both of whom had lost children in the conflict that continues to go on over there. And they are a part of a group called the Parent Circle. And they had both chosen kind of the path of peace. And it was so... um overwhelming to me their stories and how, how willing they were to fight for peace that I got on a plane and I wrote an article that I sent in the Huffington Post where I simply said in, in the face of this, in light of this, how can we not make peace in our marriages? How can we not make peace in our families? How can we not make peace with the person that slighted us or cheated us or, or kind of offended us? How can we not like in the face of these two people, change everything about how we go into this world and sow seeds of peace that we might reap a harvest um, of peace, of righteousness. And so I wanted to introduce you to them via video, uh, a beautiful video that was made of their story. And I'm not going to come back up afterwards. We're just going to go straight to communion. And here's how I want to set that up. You have a place you can write notes on that note card. There's a prayer of repentance that you can read if you want. But Paul says prepare your hearts when you come to the communion table. Um, I think that the idea is are you willing to bring healing to broken areas of your life? Are you willing to work or pursue people that you need to reconcile with? Are you willing to reconcile with God? Are you willing to reconcile with your own past? Um, Really think about that. And so what I want you to maybe consider doing is writing in that area to take notes, different areas of brokenness in your life, things that you haven't been able to let go of or people's names. And when you've really prayed that through, you can come to take, tear from the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice for communion. Um, You can make lines and then just circle out. There's a station back there as well. And before you take, write down on on some of this broken paper um, one of those things and you're gonna put it in the bowl, and then you're gonna go take communion. And it's simply this, it's not a work, it's not any kind of effort, you're not earning it, you're not gaining the right to take communion. What you're doing is simply saying, Jesus, I realize that it's a trade. It's my unrighteousness for your righteousness. That it's my, my uncleanness for your cleanness. My, my inability, my lack of energy or desire to really make peace in my life, for the grace that you so freely give me that transforms. That, that there's this beautiful trade that happens where we get grace when we remember what Christ has done for us, that God sent him, that he could be for us what we could not be for ourselves, uh, the righteousness of God. And you just write this down, you can fold it. No one's going to look at these, you don't have to put your name, but it's simply trying to enter into that spiritual space where we realize not only did Jesus make peace for us with God, but he now empowers us and gives us the ability to make peace in our lives and in our relationship with other people. We're active participants in making peace in this world, bringing shalom and health and goodness. Those of you going to Israel in November, or if you want to go to Israel in November, uh, you're going to meet these two people. So um, without any more, we'll just turn it over.